That's what it comes down to. He may not have looked like the traditional heroes that we often glorify, that we often exalt, that we often worship, and yet he truly is the hero. And his heroism is seen no better way than on that cross in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And we celebrate that here every single week here at Prairie View. We celebrate that here every week through communion. But we'll definitely hope that you join us next week as we truly celebrate that on Easter Sunday. So we hope that you can be here for that with us. I will say this. The only thing I don't like about those videos is it makes me self-conscious about my voice. Because you have those guys who are like, you know, here comes the king of Israel. And then I'm up here. Hey, how you doing? But anyway. All right. We're in the final week of our direction series, looking at the mission, vision and values here at Prairie View Christian Church. And we've looked at these things because we believe that God is calling us to go somewhere, that God is calling us to be somewhere as a church, that there is a destination that God would have us reach. And that's what we've been looking at specifically with mission. Our mission is what we want to accomplish, that end goal that we have in mind, that goal that is inspired primarily by the Great Commission to go out and make disciples of all nations. And as you can see on our fancy new banners up here, we now have those articulated for you. Our mission is to make devoted, maturing and multiplying followers of Jesus. We hope to make followers of Jesus, not just believers, not just converts, not people who have just said a prayer or raised a hand or signed a card, but people who are truly following Jesus. That is what we are called to do. That is what Matthew chapter 28 gives us the mission to do. But luckily, we are not on this mission alone. The Word and the Holy Spirit have been given to us, have been sent to us to equip us for that mission. Then we looked at vision, and our vision is simply how we want to accomplish that mission. The things that we believe God is calling us to do in order to make those followers of Jesus. And as you can see, that vision is teaching the Bible, not just teaching opinions, not just teaching self-help, not just teaching the latest spiritual fads, but rather teaching what the Bible has to say. Knowing that every single week, this book will be open here at Prairie View Christian Church. We looked at living in unity, that we are called to live as a family. We're called to be patient with one another. We're called to serve one another. We're called to build one another up, to be loyal to one another as a family would be. We're called to love our neighbors. Anyone who God places in front of us, we're called to love them. We're called to serve them. Whether they go to this church or not, whether they know Christ or not, we are called to love them. We're called to equip one another. We need each other as followers of Jesus. You need your brothers and your sisters in Christ. We are called to disciple one another, and we are called to be discipled by one another. And finally, sharing our hope. You know, there are so many places that people these days look for hope, and often they leave empty-handed. Because the only true source of hope that lasts into eternity is Christ. And that's what the church has. We are not just a YMCA with stained glass windows, as much as I love the YMCA. We are not just some community building organization, as great as those organizations are. We are called to share Christ. That's what separates the church from any old nonprofit organization. We're called to share that hope.
And then finally, we've been looking at values, the things that matter around here. The first one we looked at was honoring God in all that we do. The second one was the Bible is our authority for teaching and practice. The third one is that all people are valuable. The fourth one was that we are called to be good stewards of all that we do, of all our resources, not just our finances, but everything you see around you. And that brings us to where we are today, growth. Now, I am a relatively new father. Javen is almost two years old. We have another one on the way. But as I look at Javen, sometimes it makes me sad because I just see him growing up so fast. And I don't want him to grow up. I remember when Javen was like two or three months old, our Sunday routine was that we would have a long morning at church, we'd do 15 different things, then we'd go out to lunch with people, and when we got home at two o'clock, we were just all exhausted. And so our routine, Javen and I, was that we would lay on the couch and we would take a nap together. And sometimes it was one hour, sometimes it was two hours, sometimes it was three hours. And it was great! And the thing I loved about it is that he would lay there, he'd snuggle up with me, and he would just be there for hours. We'd both be comfortable. We wouldn't move. But if I tried to do that with Javen today, it would probably last, eh, 15 seconds, probably. Because he'd want to get up. He'd want to run. He'd want to play. He'd be yelling. He'd be squirming. That just wouldn't happen. And that makes me sad. I miss my Sunday afternoon naps with Javen. So our solution was, let's just have another. We can do that forever, right? As soon as, as soon as one gets too old, we can just have another one. That'll go on, right? That'll work. Well, the thing is that as much as I don't want Javen to grow up, if I were to somehow find some way to keep him from growing up, if I were to somehow find some way to stunt his growth to where he could be a baby forever and we could just hang out together all the time, he would never rebel against me, and we could just have this wonderful relationship, as great as that seems to me, that is a selfish desire for me to have. Because I believe that Javen's growth is a good, God-honoring thing. People are born, and they get older, and they mature, and they develop. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, all these things. And if I were to somehow try to contain that for the sake of my own comfort, I would be doing Javen a disservice. I would be doing the people around Javen a disservice. That's just how things work. Things are born, they grow, and that's just what happens. And in the same way that I believe Javen's growth, I pray, will be a God-honoring thing. I also believe that the growth of God's people, the growth of God's church, is a good, God-honoring thing. It's something that glorifies God. It's something that honors God, the growth of his church. And that's why we included it with our values. But here's the thing. There are two different aspects of growth that I really want to focus on. Both of them are really important, and that's numerical growth and spiritual growth. I believe that both aspects of growth are God-honoring, they are good things, and they are important parts of accomplishing that mission of making devoted, maturing, and multiplying followers of Jesus. So for this text, we're going to look at two different texts this morning, one from Acts chapter 2. If you'd like to open up to Acts chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 42 through 47. Now, if you've been here long, or if you've been in the church long, you've probably heard a lot of sermons preached from this passage. 
In fact, I know that I've preached from it here at this church before, and I haven't been here that long. This is one of those passages that preachers turn to because it's exhibit A of the ideal church, the perfect church. If you want to paint some kind of image in your people's minds about what a church should look like, then you turn to Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. But we're not going to spend our whole time there this morning, but we are going to see a little something about numerical growth there. So if you have your Bibles turned there, I'm going to pray, and then after I'm done praying, then we'll start looking into the text itself. So if you would, please pray with me. Father, we are thankful. We are thankful that we can gather here on Palm Sunday, the day that your son Jesus entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, kind of unassuming, not exactly how most heroes would enter a city, Not exactly awe-inspiring, but God, he was the kind of hero that humanity needed. And God, we're thankful for what happened about a week later, that he would go to a cross, that he would not defend himself, not concerned about self-preservation, but rather concerned about sacrifice. For people like me and people like us in in this room who don't deserve it, And God, we are thankful for that. We are humbled by that. We celebrate that. And I pray that over these next five, six, seven days, as we reflect on what that means, as we look forward to Easter, God, that will have a more profound impact on our hearts and our minds than it ever has before. God, we love you. We honor you. And we're humbled that you could use people like us, that you could use a church like ours, to grow and build your kingdom. And it's a privilege to be a part of that. God, we love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. One more thing before we actually get into the text. Let's put a few things out there on the table. Let's just get it all out there, put it out there in the open, something that most of us can probably all pretty much agree with. There are some of you in this room who are immediately turned off by the ideal of numerical growth. You hear numerical growth and you think, oh boy, all we care about is growing a church. All we care about is building a bigger building. All we care about is filling more chairs. But let me offer you some level of comfort to that. There may be some validity to your concern about numerical growth. Maybe you've been a part of a church that cared way too much about numbers To the point where they sacrificed sound teaching for the sake of just building more people, for the sake of adding a zero to the attendance chart, for the sake of just feeling better about themselves with their big, shiny building. And ever since you felt that way, ever since you experienced that, you're a little bit turned off by the idea of numerical growth. And initially, your defenses go up as soon as you hear that. And I understand that. Trust me. Maybe you've been a part of a church, a small church your whole life, and you just can't imagine your church getting any bigger. You already have a hard enough time knowing people's names, much less if it got bigger than it currently is. And so numerical growth scares you. Or maybe you've been a part of a big church and you didn't like the fact that you hardly knew anybody. It didn't feel like a family. It just felt like a big crowd. No one had those deep relationships. No one had those true friendships. And so you come to a church like Prairie View and you find that smaller family atmosphere. You don't feel like a crowd of strangers anymore. And you love that about this church. 
And so when you hear numerical growth, you're thinking, "Uh uh-uh, this is the whole reason why I came here. I left a big church for this church. Why are we talking about numerical growth? Well, let me put this out there. I know exactly where you're coming from. I'll be the first to admit that I am partial to smaller churches. Most of the most important years of my life as a follower of Jesus were spent in smaller churches. The biggest church I've ever worked at is a church of 300 people, which in the big scheme of things isn't all that big. My parents go to a church of 2,000 people, and when I go there on occasion, I feel like a total fish out of water. I am overwhelmed. My mind is looking at 15 million different things, and I'm looking at all these things they offer and all these things they do. And part of me thinks, oh my gosh, I wish we could do that at Prairie View. They have so many more resources than we do. But then part of me says, man, I would hate to work here because my mind would be in a million different places with all the stuff that is going on here all at once. And so while I admit that I'm partial to small churches the same way many of you may be as well, that may be why you're here in the first place. As we read the book of Acts, numerical growth is presented as a good and God honoring thing. There's no way around it. You can't get around it. So let's look to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we have this ideal picture of church. They've just got it down. They know how to work it. They're devoted to sound teaching. They love one another. They're generous. They're glad. They praise God together. They eat together. They have a good reputation with the people around them. Perfect church, it seems. What could possibly go wrong in this church? Well, there's one more thing that you notice in that passage. They're growing. People are being added. And the bigger their church would grow the harder it would become to manage, as you see in the rest of the book of Acts. Problems would creep up. Disagreements would happen, and that's just how it works. But you notice that they are growing numerically. And the Lord is doing it. He's the one adding to their number. It's not through catchy gimmicks. It's not through selling out. The Lord is adding to their number. And that is considered a good thing in this passage. So what exactly is the numerical growth that we hope to see here at Prairie View? Well, it's in that passage. It's people being saved. That's true growth. That's true God-honoring growth. Good, true God-honoring growth is not just about building a crowd because people like the preacher, because people like the sermons, or because people like the worship minister, or like the music, or like this person, or that person, or this one aspect of the church. That's not good God-honoring growth. Good God-honoring growth is people being saved. 
It's not about building a crowd. It's not about filling chairs. It's not about increasing a budget. It's about people being saved. And you know, there are lots of God-honoring, non-God-honoring ways to build a crowd. Just build the biggest, fanciest building you possibly can. Forget about sound teaching. Forget about the Bible. Forget about proclaiming Christ and Christ alone. Just build a giant building that people will be amazed by. And that could build a crowd. Maybe you just simply say what people want to hear. That can build a pretty good crowd, too. There are lots of non-God-honoring ways to be a, build a crowd. But the true God-honoring form of numerical growth is people being saved. People who didn't know Jesus before coming to know Jesus now. It's not about getting people who already know Jesus to leave their church and come here. That's not what it's about. It's about people who don't know Christ coming to know him. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we're going to turn people away. There are some preachers and some churches that when they get together on Sunday morning, the preacher will say, now, if you're a Christian, get out of here. We don't want you here. We're not here for you if you're a Christian. We're only here for non-Christians. And I get where they're coming from. I get their point. But here's the thing. The church originally was the fellowship of believers. That's how it was. And don't get me wrong, we completely understand that there are Christians who will come to this church and we will welcome them with open arms. People move to new areas and they need to find a new church. There are people who they believe God is calling them to go to a different church for whatever reason. There are people who leave their church because they are no longer teaching sound doctrine. They are no longer teaching good practice. And we welcome those people with open arms. But that's not our primary source of numerical growth. Our primary source of numerical growth is to be people being saved. People who don't know Jesus coming to know Jesus. So now that we know a little bit about what numerical growth is and what it isn't, why do we expect it? We use that word expect. We don't say that we hope for numerical growth. We don't say that we wish that numerical growth would happen. We don't say that we think numerical growth may happen. We say that we expect numerical growth to happen. Well, just some food for thought. I did some math this week. That could be a problem because I failed geometry in high school. But I did some math in Hamilton and Marion counties alone. There are 1,225,000 people, roughly. That's a rough estimate. Now, if you don't live or work in those two counties, I didn't mean to leave you out. I'm just thinking those are the two counties that most of us live and work in or vice versa. So 1,225,000 people in these two counties. 330,750 people out of that 1,225,000 do not know Christ. Now, that's based on this study that was done that says 73% of Americans identify themselves as Christians. Now, I get it. There are some variables there. Some areas are more Christian than others. Just humor me here. So let's assume 330,750 people do not know Christ. In addition, 46% of Indiana residents attend religious services on a regular basis. That means that there are 661,500 people in our two counties this morning who, for whatever reason, are not in church. 
Maybe they are Christians. Maybe they consider themselves Christians. But for whatever reason, their faith is not thriving to the point where they are in community with other believers on a regular basis. If nothing else, we expect numerical growth. We expect people to be saved because there are literally hundreds of thousands of opportunities on my doorstep and on your doorstep. In the places that we live, in the places that we work, in the places that we play, opportunities are there. The harvest is plentiful. But even then, that's not the biggest reason we expect spiritual growth. There are tons of opportunities, but the biggest reason we expect numerical growth is because the Word and the Spirit are powerful. That's what it comes back to. That's what we believe. I believe that if each and every one of us were to take ownership over the Great Commission, were to truly view ourselves as missionaries everywhere we go and with everyone we meet, that could have a profound impact on the kingdom of God. And numerical growth will happen. People will be saved because the Word and the Spirit are powerful. I say that because I believe people who share the gospel with others People who share the gospel and at the same time are being transformed and changed and pruned by the word and the Holy Spirit themselves. I believe that's a big deal. That's a powerful thing. That's something that the gates of hell cannot overcome. In fact, look at what John Wesley once said. John Wesley said, give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. Such alone will shake the gates of hell. You and I are called to be those preachers. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to wear a microphone. You don't have to stand up here on Sunday morning. You are called to be a preacher. I am called to be a preacher. And we have been equipped and empowered with the word and with the spirit to bring the gospel to those who don't know Christ. That's why we expect numerical growth. So we've talked about numerical growth, and that matters. It's an important aspect of this idea of growth. But there's another aspect to it, spiritual growth, which is just as important. So, for aspect number two, spiritual growth, turn to Colossians chapter 3 in your Bible. Colossians chapter 3 is often viewed as the number one chapter of the Bible for spiritual growth, spiritual development, spiritual formation, discipleship, whatever it is you want to call it. So, Colossians chapter 3. Now, in verses 1 through 4 of Colossians chapter 3, Paul talks about this identity that we have found in Christ. He talks about how your life is with Christ, that you have died. The idea being that you're not the same person as you once were if you have come to know Christ. You're not just a new and improved version. You're not just the same person on the inside and cleaned up a little bit on the outside. That's not what it's about. You are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. You are a new person. You have a new identity. That's what verses 1 through 4 hit on. And then he says in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. 
anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul's message is clear. These things that once identified you as a rebel, these things that once identified you as an idol worshiper, these things that once made you even an enemy of God, those things don't define you anymore. You are a new creation. You are a follower of Christ. These characteristics, these traits, they don't tell you who you are anymore. So put them off. Those things are dead. You're not that person anymore. You once walked in them, but you are not called to walk in them anymore. But then look at what Paul says in verse 12. He doesn't just hit on these things that you're not supposed to do, that don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. Look at verse 12. He then identifies things that you are called to be characterized by. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts, to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul says something interesting. He says, put these things on as God's chosen ones. He does not say, put these things on so that you can become one of God's chosen ones. That one little word there, as, two letters, makes all the difference in the world. Because that seems to imply that this identity that you found in Christ, that happens before all of these other things. Your identity is not dependent upon working really, really hard to be more holy. Working really, really hard to be more compassionate. Working really, really hard to be more kind and humble and meek. We do these things because we already have a new identity. We are already someone different. We are no longer that rebel. We are no longer that idol worshiper. We are no longer that enemy. We have been made a child. You are a son. You are a daughter of God. That happens before any of this other stuff comes along. Sometimes people would argue that in order to be a child of God, you better get yourself straight. You better get yourself cleaned up. But that is not what Paul is saying here. He says, become a child of God. Come to know Christ. Throw yourself at the cross. And when that new identity comes, when God makes you that new creation, then start living like a child. Don't live like a rebel anymore. Don't live like an idol worshiper anymore. Don't live like an enemy anymore. Live like a son. Live like a daughter. It is by God's grace that we have been given this privilege and given this honor 
to put off the things that once defined us and to put on the things that define us now as people forgiven by God. You know, the truth is that spiritual growth is summed up pretty well in this passage. Spiritual growth is putting to death the old person and letting the new person live. That's pretty much what it comes down to. Paul's not the only one to use this kind of imagery, this death and life imagery. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24 and 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus seems to be saying the exact same thing. Put yourself to death now for the sake of life in eternity. And if all you care about right now is life in the present, then you may just end up finding death. Death and life. Old self, new self. Old creation, new creation. That's what spiritual growth is. So again, it has to be asked, why do we expect spiritual growth here at Prairie View? We talked about why we expect it numerically, but why do we expect it spiritually. Well, that's where these two aspects of growth have more in common than we might realize. They kind of come together here, and that's this. We said we expect numerical growth because the Word and the Holy Spirit are powerful. We expect spiritual growth because the Word and the Holy Spirit are powerful. Paul says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. I believe that that person who has been made a new creation that person who has been forgiven by God, that person who has been adopted as a child of God, that person who lets the word of Christ dwell in them, who has the Holy Spirit taking up residence in them. I believe that person cannot leave unchanged. And you know, too often when we talk about spiritual growth, we talk about it like it's nothing more than stopping bad habits and starting good habits. Stop being a bad person and start being a good person. And we might even look at what Paul says and be tempted to read it that way, but that's not the idea. It's not just about willpower. It's not just about discipline. It's not just about quitting bad things and starting good things cold turkey style. That's not what it is. The Word and the Spirit have a role to play in it. Is there an aspect of discipline? Yes. Is there an aspect of desire? Yes. Is there an aspect of the will? Yes. But it is not just on us to grow spiritually. The Word and the Spirit are given for a reason. And the Word and the Holy Spirit are powerful. And the Word and the Holy Spirit dwell in you if you are a follower of Christ. They are continually pruning you, like Rick talked about. They are continually transforming you. They are continually purifying you. They play a vital role in spiritual growth. It's not just about your own will. It's not just about your own abilities. It's not just about your own ability to get yourself straight. That's not what it is. The Word and the Holy Spirit play a role in it. And so we believe here at Prairie View that those people who have been forgiven by God, those people who have thrown themselves at the foot of the cross, those people who have placed their trust in the blood of Jesus, those people are called to be growing spiritually. Paul expects it. Jesus expects it. And the Word and the Holy Spirit have been given for that reason. So that's the last value. Growth. 
numerical, spiritual, both are important. We want people to be saved, but we also want those who are saved to look a little bit more like Jesus every single day. It does not happen overnight. It is not always a smooth process, but it's a process that we hope to see. It's a prospect that we expect to see. Because I believe there is nothing more glorifying to God than people being saved. And there's nothing more glorifying to God than people who are saved looking more and more like Jesus. I truly believe that. And that's why we've put that on the list of values. Because ultimately we seek to honor God in all that we do. And one of the best ways to do that is have more people be saved. Have people who are saved become more and more like Jesus. That is the privilege that we've been given. That is the honor that we've been given to participate in. That's what we expect of ourselves, and that's what we expect of all who call this church home. We're not in this alone. The Word and the Holy Spirit are powerful. They will change us. They will transform us. The question is, do we want to see that happen? Do we really want to see that happen? Because I believe it is the most God-honoring thing that we can do as a church. Let's pray. Father, we are totally undeserving of this of this ability to call ourselves sons and daughters of God. You truly are the hero of our story or the hero of that story that we call the Bible. And God, we trust in your grace. God, we pray that as time goes on that you will use us, messed up people, imperfect people, flawed people, to transform the world around us. That more people might come to know you. That people might be reconciled to you. That enemies would become children. God, we're thankful that you've, in your grace, chosen us to be a part of that. And God, I pray that we won't take that for granted. I pray that as we've spent seven weeks now re-examining what it is our church is all about and what it is you've called us to do and how it is we're going to do it, God, I pray that we will always keep in mind that as great as those conversations are, as much as those things matter, we're dependent upon you. That's what it all comes back to. And God, I pray that over the next week as we think about Easter, that your resurrection would not just be something we celebrate on one day a week from now, but something we celebrate every day. That your name would be lifted high in all that we say and all that we do. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for the cross. And we thank you for the mission that you've given us. And thank you that we're not on our own in doing it. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.